Father, as we again are reflecting on your faithfulness, we see evidence of that in nature as our earth continues to revolve around the sun and to see the four seasons continue on to realize, Lord, we see that you are faithful. You do not change. We thank you, Lord, that you have seen your faithfulness in the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that that is our hope. That is what we rely on. We rely on Christ and his faithfulness. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to appreciate these truths in a real and uh, poignant way today. We pray, Lord, that you might even open the eyes of those who have not fully appreciated your faithfulness in the gospel, that they might know you and completely rely upon you in true saving faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I open with a question. You don't need to answer aloud, but I want us to start our thinking, as we used to say, put our thinking caps on. And here's the question. How is the gospel shaping your character? I didn't ask the question, what are you doing to improve yourself and your reputation? My question is, in what ways would you think that you are seeing the gospel over time, the gospel of grace impacting your life? Now, I start with that question because I want us to get clearly in our minds today that when we talk about the gospel, we're not thinking of the gospel primarily as a ticket that we use to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, and that's all that it is. Clearly it is that. The gospel of grace, however, is meant to be that plus a continually applied truth to our hearts and our lives so that our character increasingly, over time, reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the saving work of Jesus Christ, we think about his perfect, obedient life, We think about his atoning death on the cross. We think about his victorious resurrection from the dead. It is this work of Christ that is meant to have an ongoing, sanctifying influence in our lives, incrementally going forward. It is to result in a turning away from the patterns of ungodly living and replacing those patterns with the character traits that resemble the godly character of Jesus Christ. And as we said in previous weeks, one of the evidences that the saving faith is at work in our hearts and lives is when we see the Holy Spirit and his sanctifying work making us produce this fruit that is in keeping with Christ-likeness, the fruit of holiness, if you will. The Apostle James, in his book, described these evidences that are seen in the life of true believers, as he called them, works. Faith without works is dead. That is, faith, someone claiming to trust and believe in Jesus Christ and have saving faith, unless there's the evidence of that faith manifesting itself in the life of holiness, in the Spirit's fruit, then that faith is questionable. So if the Spirit of God has imparted a new nature and he's bringing forth spiritual life in a person's heart, there must be outward evidences of that fruit over time. And that brings us now to our continuing study in Galatians chapter 5, as I hope you are becoming fairly familiar with this list of the fruit of the Spirit in page number uh, 1338 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please find your way there in the pew Bible. And we're looking at his contrast from the deeds of the flesh, and now he lists for us the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our goal this morning is to look at this concept of faithfulness, the character trait of faithfulness. And I want us to do that by, first of all, considering God's faithfulness or God's dependability, if you will. His dependability in the gospel. And then the second point of our message this morning is to look at our response to God's faithfulness or God's dependability in the gospel. So let's begin, first of all, with God. Divine faithfulness in the gospel. One of the character traits that God must have in order to be righteous, in order to be holy, is God must be faithful. God cannot be God and lack integrity. God cannot be God and be untrustworthy. God cannot be God and prove again and again to be unreliable. And this is why the authors of Scripture, on numerous occasions, and I don't have time to go into, there's at least 40 or 50 of these passages that we could look at, but I've just gleaned a few of them where they celebrate the faithfulness of God. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God. What kind of God? The faithful God that sets Him apart from all others. Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90 say this. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. And then let's look up this one, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let's find that one in your Bibles, page 257. Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning with verse 3. You see, when God promises to do something, He always follows through. Always. He always keeps his word. Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 3, the first part of it says, Ascribe greatness to our God. Why should we do that? Well, he goes on to say, verse verse 4, His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, he is righteous and upright is he. See, it makes no sense whatsoever to worship God, the God of the Bible, and to submit to his word and rely upon what he says if it's not upright and if it's not reliable and dependable. He is not worthy of our trust. He is not worthy of our faith if he is unreliable. And the scriptures insist again and again, God is absolutely truthful God is absolutely honest in all his dealings. He is utterly dependable. He keeps his commitments. And see, this is the heart of the gospel. If God is not faithful, then there is no such thing as good news in the gospel. You see, the God who made everything did so for his own pleasure, for his own glory. And in making all things, he also made us humans in his image. And despite the perfect environment that he put Adam and Eve in, Adam and Eve, in that environment, listened to the deceiver who twisted the truth and distorted the truth and questioned God and his ways. And Adam and Eve rebelled against the one and the only faithful God. And therefore, all of us, as Adam's descendants, 
are like Adam and Eve, we too are faithless. All of us, like Adam, we fail to keep our promises. And we have no righteousness, therefore, of our own. But God, because of his great love, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, on a rescue mission. It is Jesus Christ in his incarnation as he took on human flesh, all the while remaining God. He took on human flesh, became fully man, and then he demonstrated what no one has ever done before or since. He demonstrated his perfect faithfulness. It is Christ who never failed to keep the requirements of the laws of God. Not once. He was 100% reliable 100% of the time. He was honest in all his dealings, all the things he did and said. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, we read of Jesus making this statement. He asked the question, which one of you, and who would ever say this if you're not Jesus Christ, the perfect one, which one of you convicts me of sin? He says, since I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? He's questioning them to say, Look, I am honest. I am truthful. There's nothing you can point out in my life that would indicate I'm not. Jesus only spoke truth. And when he laid down his faithful life, he did so for those of us who were unfaithful. He underwent the wrath of God for the sins of unreliable people like you and me. And God raised Jesus from the dead in order to testify to everyone and to all who would ask, that Jesus alone is, according to Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 19, Jesus alone is the one who is faithful and true. That is the gospel. Now let's turn to page 942, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Here in this rich passage of Scripture, we see further expressions of God's faithfulness in the gospel spelled out in what we call the New Covenant. This is God's unilateral covenant agreement he made with his people, which Jesus Christ ratified with his blood, saying, I am going to keep this covenant, and I'll show you the extent to which I'll do so by laying down my life and sealing it with my blood. Look what he says in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will pour my law, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Notice this. For I will forgive them their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What a promise. What a covenant. But if God is not trustworthy, if God does not keep his promises, if the new covenant he made is not reliable, I would dare say that none of us has any hope of having our crushing load of guilt lifted from our burdened shoulders. Here is the hope of the gospel. 1 John 1, 9. 
if we, who are true believers in Jesus Christ, if we admit our unfaithfulness, if we admit that we are in need of a Savior, if we admit that we have rebelled against God and stand condemned before Him, and we are those who repent of our sins and turn away from a life of rebellious, a rebellion against God and transfer our trust from our own efforts to improve ourselves, to somehow gain acceptance before God and our standing before Him, and turn to Jesus Christ and place our faith on Him alone, He who died in our place, He who bore the wrath that we deserve from God. And we believe that God then raises Jesus from the dead, the gospel says we are saved. We are saved. The guilt is lifted. The condemnation is gone. And we become children of God by faith. And then the gospel also adds that wonderful promise to those who do come to Christ in faith and says, if we as believers confess our sins, admit to God what he knows to be true about it, God is faithful. God is faithful. In what way is God faithful to his people who confess their sins? Well, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some, not most, but all unrighteousness. See, Jesus will not make his people pay for our sins someday in the future because Jesus has already paid them in full on the cross. Period. How can we have that confidence then? How can we know for sure that our sins are fully paid for? How can we know that we truly are cleansed from our sins? How can we have that kind of confidence? My friend, it all boils down to God is faithful. It is not about us being faithful enough to therefore be forgiven. It is about the fact that Jesus himself was faithful and therefore we rely on what he has accomplished for us and what God has told us in his word and therefore we count on him as the reliable one, the trustworthy one, the dependable one. And it is written in 1 John, these are written that you might know that you have eternal life. How do we know? Based on the promises of his word. My friend, it seems to me that has got to be the foundation. If we're going to go anywhere with this idea of gaining faithfulness as part of our character, it begins with understanding, claiming, and entrusting ourselves to Christ in the gospel and counting on his faithfulness of what he's done for us. Now, flowing out of that then leads us to our second point, and that's where we talk about our response to God's dependability or his faithfulness in the gospel. Since we know that the scriptures say that God does not lie and cannot lie, he cannot tell a fib, since God is not duplicitous, it makes perfect sense then to fully and completely rely upon his word. That's the first thing. We've got to rely upon his word. Now, if somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, i got a good deal for you. If you were to invest in this particular investment opportunity, you'll get a return on your money of, let's say, 30 and 40% return. And they say, you know, all you have to do is invest your money in this particular thing, and 30, 40% will be yours over a period of time. Now, that sounds pretty good, huh? No, that didn't sound good. That sounds unbelievably good. And guess what? It is unbelievably too good. 
Because if someone offers you 30, 40% on your investment, guess what? It's very likely they're offering you to invest in a Ponzi scheme. Because there is no such thing as that kind of investment in a regular investment tool that you'd be invited to participate in that they can guarantee you. Now, these are promises offered by someone who's not reliable. But what I'm trying to help us understand is that God makes incredible promises to us and he stands by those promises. He never reneges on his promises. And faith, therefore, is the reasonable and logical and appropriate response to a God who has those kind of promises proven by his character and by what he's demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Let's look at Romans chapter 4 just to understand a little bit more about what faith and how to respond to the word of God and relying upon it with faith. Romans 4, page 1342. This is an account about Abraham. And interesting that faith is the proper response to God in view of his trustworthiness. If God is truly trustworthy, and I've tried to show he is, Therefore, it makes sense to trust him and to rely upon him in faith. So we pick it up in Romans 4, verse 20. With respect to the promises of God, what did Abraham do? Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, fully assured that what God has promised, he was able also to perform. It's as if he's saying, God, in making promises, in a sense, fills out a check and gives it to each of his children and says, here's a check for you to cash. I'm not saying God's going to make you rich. Now, don't hear me saying a health and wealth gospel. I'm saying God in his promises is, like, is as if he's handing you a check saying, this is made out to you. This is for you to use. And when we take that check and we endorse that check, That is by saying, I believe that it is true and I'm going to use it. I'm going to rely upon it and therefore use it in a sense to cash it in that sense. It means that God at that point can be trusted because he has an endless resources to back up that check. God never bounces his checks of promises. And so it makes perfect sense then for Abraham to say, I am absolutely confident in God and therefore I take his promises And I act as if I know he's capable of doing that, and I move forward based on assurance that he indeed is a God who keeps his promises. Relying upon his word, taking his word to heart. If we took God's word at heart, we would therefore trust him more, which therefore means we would rely upon him more and know that he is capable of doing what he's promised to do. What's another practical area? Secondly, Another response to the faithfulness of God's promises is to count on him in time of need. Count on him in time of need. Here's another great promise, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Can you find your way there in your Bible? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Page 1364. This is one of those verses where you can translate the key word here, Either temptation, you can also translate it as testing. It depends on the context. Same Greek word, translated both ways. So I prefer the word testing in this particular passage. <clears throat> and he says this, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. What's that mean? That means you're not alone in what you're dealing with. Other people have walked this path. Other people have dealt with this kind of testing in their life. 
And God is faithful. That should be underlined. If you don't underline, your, if you're underlining your Bible, that's that's a key phrase in this whole verse. God is faithful. In what sense is God faithful? If I'm going through testings, He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Wow, that's a relief. You mean that what I'm facing is not going to overwhelm me? Yes. That's Isaiah 43, by the way. And, and then he goes on to say, But with the testing, he will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure the testing. You might be able to stand up under it. How many of us, I wonder, you don't have to answer out loud, but I'm just curious, how many of us would say we're going through a time of testing in my life? I'm going through a time of difficulty, have an overwhelming problem I'm dealing with. As Tim alluded to earlier, the Bible does not say if you go through a trial. It assumes we will go through trials. They are part of what happens in the life of God's people. But I want you to hear how Jay Adams, one of the founders of biblical counseling, he, he meditated on this little phrase that God is faithful. Listen to the way he tries to understand what this verse is trying to encourage us to believe about God. Perhaps he says you're discouraged. Perhaps you've given up all hope. Perhaps you are too hesitant to hope again. If so, listen to what God's word is to his own people. He says God is faithful. There is hope. The problem you face, seemingly impregnable, seemingly insoluble, in other words, that it can't be solved, that there's no solution here, seemingly impossible, by the way, this is in your notes, it has, no, has a solution in Christ. God says, in effect, based upon my own faithfulness, based upon my own integrity, of my own word in my own person, God says, I declare that there is no problem that my redeemed sons and daughters ever face that is either unique or beyond their ability to handle if they meet the problem my way using my resources. God gives a guarantee. There's no fine print to make it worthless. Some of us are familiar with contracts that come with pages of small print. Have you ever seen a an insurance policy with your car. I have a particular car carrier that has a little gecko. I won't mention any more names, but anyway. And I receive in the mail large packets of printed material. It is must be at least 20 pages sometimes. I don't ever read through all that stuff. And a lot of it is the small print, the exclusions, the thing they're not going to cover or whatever, or defining what this means or what all the small print. God doesn't operate that way. God's promises are built upon his faithfulness. He stands by them, take them at their face value. Now that leads us then to our, another practical way we can apply these things. Not only learning to rely upon his word, learning to really trust him in faith, but then to imitate God by living a life of integrity. Imitating God by living a life of integrity. What does that mean? Well, I'd like to suggest a way of, of illustrating this is Psalm 15. Psalm 15, page 657 in your pew Bible. Here we have David reflecting on the fact that to really be a person of integrity means that we're going to have to at some point obey God no matter the cost. And so David reflects on the fact that those who abide in communion and fellowship with God, who, who are part of this, 
this uh, opportunity to worship him in the tabernacle, those who are sincerely worshiping and serving God, he says, if you connect the dots, he says, you'll conclude that those who fellowship with a faithful God are prompted by the gospel then to live a life of honesty and reliability. Look at verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Verse 4. He also will swear to his own hurt and does not change. Here I think is an example of what integrity does. Integrity says, I make a promise and then I'm going to stick with that promise as best I'm able to even if it means that keeping the commitment is greatly inconvenient for me, or also I have to suffer loss because I'm keeping my word on this particular deal. came across a very interesting story about an illustration of this idea of keeping one's word. There was a fellow named John Blanchard years ago who was in the military during World War II. Well, before he was commissioned to go... <clears throat> He was in Florida and going through books in the library, came across a book. He was thumbing through it, noticed that the book had a lot of notes written in the book, in the margin, in a nice penmanship, and noticed that a lot of those comments he thought were quite insightful, quite interesting, things he thought were quite helpful and agreed with, and meant a lot to him as he read it. And he said, I wonder who that person was. And he noticed that the book was donated to the library, had the name of the original, uh, original owner of the book. Her name was Hollis. Maynell. Well, this Hollis Maynell, the previous owner, um, he looked up as best he could to find out where she was from. Found out that she was a person who lived in New York City. And when he found out that information, he then took her address and wrote her a letter right before he left for World War II. And so they became pen pals. She wrote back to him, realized that he was appreciative of her writings and this book and so they exchanged letters the whole time he's gone for several years during World War II. Toward the latter part of that exchange, he asked her, would you send me a picture of yourself? And she said, I'd rather not. He said, I just want to know if, if you really care for me, you wouldn't be too concerned about what I look like. And since he had already said, I care deeply about you, she therefore um, did not send that. And so they continued in their correspondence until finally the day came when he was returning home they agreed that they would meet in Grand Central Station at a particular time, on a particular night, and she indicated to him, you to look for me, I will be the one wearing a red rose on my lapel. And so he came into this large gathering of people, he's looking around, he keeps looking around, and as he looks, he notices, of course, there's a very stunning woman, a young woman coming toward him, beautiful blonde hair, blue eyes, wearing a green, light green outfit, and She's walking toward him, and he thinks, oh, this is he, this is she, this is she. And right as he's about to introduce himself, she mentions mumbling something like, going my way, sailor? But she wasn't wearing the rose. So about the time when she did that, she's walking past him. He looked, and here's a woman standing there with the rose on her, on the coat uh, there, standing there. And so he says, oh, well, this must be she. He describes her as being a person past 40 years of age. She had some graying hair under her hat, and he described her as, this is his description, as more than plump. I don't know what that means, but you can just imagine. So he did what he, was, what he said he would do. 
He had a copy of that original book from the library with him. And he introduced himself and said, hi, I'm John Blanchard. And he said, it's really nice to meet you, Miss Maynell. He said, I wonder if you'd like to go to dinner with me. And she looked up at him and she said, listen, I don't know what all this is about, young man. She said, but the woman that just passed you asked me to wear this rose in my lapel. And she said, if you were to ask me for dinner, she said, I'm supposed to direct you to go and find her across the street in the restaurant because for some reason she said this was a test. Now that's faithfulness. He did what he said he was going to do, even if it didn't look out as if it was going to go the same direction he had hoped it would go. Now what's the point here? I'm, I'm just aware in our culture today, it is not popular anymore to make a commitment to go to a social engagement. People, by and large, I find, in general, many of them do not RSVP. They do not give any kind of commitment that I am going to come to such and such occasion, and you can count on me. And what they do, I think, is they wait around. Because of social media, you can find out who's going where, who's going to what, who's going to be there, and at the last minute, they say, hmm, don't like that option, don't like nope, nope, I'm going with this one. And boom, then they go. And what you find today is that a person of commitment, a person who is faithful says, I'm committed to going to whatever event you've invited me to. I'm responding in an appropriate amount of time as I've been invited to. And therefore, I'm committed. And if someone then offers you and says, here's tickets to the front row seats on the uh, field level, going to watch whatever, it's the Mets or the Yankees or whoever, and you've been hoping that that day would come, you say, nope, sorry, I can't come. I've already got a commitment or a concert, or whatever it is that you would really want to go to, you stick with your commitment. Even though it might be very painful and difficult, that's what a person of integrity would do. The pressure to compromise is indeed intense. It's easy to cut corners. It's easy to lessen the hardship in keeping our word. But can people depend upon you even when it's non-convenient? I wonder how many of us can say we have a reputation for being scrupulously honest. That's the way God's people should be known. Our yes should be yes, our no should be no. Are we known to be people reliable, consistent, dependable? I didn't say perfect, but known as a general character trait. See, we live in a culture now where it pretty much, they accept unfaithfulness is the norm. And so we have employees who come They don't particularly care about that job so much. They come late. They come unprepared to work. They don't follow through with their job assignments. They sit there and look on the Internet and do all their shopping and do all their social media exchange, and they just goof off half the time, and they're not performing in any kind of a faithfulness to what the boss is paying them to do. We've seen a collapse of so many marriages in our culture today. As husbands and wives on one side of the equation or the other who will say, Ah, these, these vows, I didn't, I, I'm not going to stick with those things. Things have changed. I don't feel the way I used to years ago. And they look for the exit door. And many people today don't even consider marriage because they refuse to exchange vows. Why? Because they don't want to be held to any kind of expectation that I have to be faithful for life. I want to keep my options open. What a, what a, what a sad commentary 
on the evidence of unfaithfulness in our culture today. What a wonderful opportunity for the people of God to shine, to shine as people who are faithful, people who are reliable, people who are saying, God has been faithful to me in the gospel. I love and appreciate the opportunity to seek to be faithful for him. Faithfulness also applies to squandering our resources. Are we a good steward of the things that God's given us? Or do we squander so much, just waste it away, investing in things that have no value, never investing in things that have eternal value? There's a lot can be said about that as well. Here's the summary. I want to bring it down to this one point. If you want to summarize what faithfulness to God, because of the gospel means, it means obeying God in all areas in which God speaks. In your notes. Obeying God in all areas in which God speaks. And over the long haul, not just once or twice, but beginning to make that a pattern of your life over a period of time, whether we want to or not, and whether we feel like it or not, then we begin to see what faithfulness starts to look like. I wonder if how many of us are known to be those who misrepresent the facts, or we shade the truth in how we describe things. If we are accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness, then, my friends, we don't need to have the fear of man motivating us to fudge on the truth. We can say, I'll tell you the truth because my security is with Christ. Not with you and what you think of me. I wonder how many of us would have to say, you know, if you're really honest, there has been a time in my life where I had to keep saying and tack on the words, really, to what I was saying. No, really, I'm serious. No, really. That, that, I'm telling you, you need to... Re- Why do you keep saying really? Is it because people don't rely on what you normally say? You see, the gospel hopefully begins to penetrate our hearts and begins to soften our hearts and say, I am motivated out of a love for Christ to love other people. And how do I love other people? I serve them and love them by treating them as they would desire to be treated by telling them the truth and by showing them and being a reliable person who keeps my promises as best I can. And when I don't, I confess that, ask for forgiveness, and admit my failings. May God help us. May God help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we certainly have been humbled once again to reflect upon our faithfulness of our Savior. We thank you that there never, ever was one time he was unreliable and untrustworthy. Father, how we thank you that the one who was righteous died for those who are unrighteous and who are unfaithful, that we might have full forgiveness, that we might gain full acceptance, on the basis of grace, incredible, amazing grace. Father, I pray as we meditate upon what Christ has done for us in the gospel, that the grace of the gospel will motivate us to have, to have a, a, a greater desire, Lord, to be people of commitment, people of faithfulness, people who seek to be integrity, characterizing our lives, to honor you and represent you in a way, Lord, that is indeed much more accurate than perhaps we have in the past. We thank you that there's forgiveness for our failings and there's hope for our future because of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.